I'm at a service station somewhere off the M8, which is the motorway that runs between Edinburgh and Glasgow. I'm looking for a town by the name of Livingston. Uh, I've been driving all day because I've come from Essex. So I'm quite far away now from my regular digs in Essex. But I am, of course, on the hunt for a story, as you can imagine. Now, if you know anything about the UK UFO scene, you may have heard of the town of Livingston because it's rather well known for a sighting uh, sometimes called the Deckmont Woods Encounter. So uh, this uh, afternoon, as I sit here drinking bad petrol station coffee and getting ready to uh, fill up the car, uh, I'm on the trail of that particular um, encounter. So I think I know where I'm going. Uh, I've had a little faff getting here. I got lost a couple of times. Um, I've had to stop a few times to ask for directions and the old GPS is, is playing up a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that I'm within a few miles of Livingston now. So hopefully I'll have a story to tell very soon. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird a podcast that investigates parapsychology and the unexplained to find out exactly why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and some weeks ago, in December 2019, I got the chance to visit Deckmont Woods, site of a famous UFO encounter back in 1979. I'm recording this in early 2020, safely back at the White Atlantic Weird Cabin, thankfully drinking much better, though decaffeinated, coffee as I work. It is the new year, resolutions and all. Britain in the 1970s had a very distinctive UFO culture, separate from and equally as fascinating as its American counterpart. It's from this period that we got such classic tales as the Welch Triangle Flap, the Berwyn Mountains Crash, and of course the Rendlesham Forest Incident at the end of the decade. But the Deckmont Woods encounter occupies a unique place even amongst this illustrious group, and for several reasons. Firstly, the witness is regarded by all who knew him as being a reliable person and one who never exploited his story for money, yet who stuck to his story until the end of his life. Secondly, this was a so-called close encounter of the second kind, in which physical traces of the UFO were left behind, and this was taken seriously enough by police to become the only known UFO sighting subject to a police investigation. Lastly, the extraordinary nature of the phenomena itself lifts it well above the list of common reports. The witness, Robert Taylor, reported seeing a craft and accompanying beings that seem to have no parallel in either UFO folklore or science fiction. So, I've made it to uh, the Deckmont Woods. I faffed around a little bit in the town of Livingston. You know, got some lunch and uh, some more coffee. Uh, it's been a very a very long day driving and a very early morning, so the coffee was well needed. I had some faffing about there and some uh, parking misadventures, shall we say. But uh, I finally figured out how to get up here. So the the car park to get here, well, I parked anyway, near what appeared to be a secondary school. Livingston itself is a new town. That is to say, it's... Um, not traditionally a place where there was historically a big town, uh, but it was built, purpose-built, I suppose, after the war uh, in the 50s and 60s. 
So what I've done is I've parked the car and I've come up the hill the same route that UFO witness Robert Taylor would have come up when he had his encounter back in 1979. Now I'm currently walking through sort of like an avenue of uh, mostly coniferous trees. They're planted in rows. It's very clear that they are plant. They were planted. That this is uh, or was a plantation. It's an extremely bright and sunny day in late December 2019. A little bit later in the day than when Taylor came up here, but close enough to the time of year, I suppose, that things must have looked a little bit like they did on that particular day. So in a moment now, I'm going to come around the corner and step into the clearing where he had his sighting. So here it is. What I'm looking at is a clearing perhaps 30 or 40 metres across. Um, it's more filled in than it would have been back in 1979. The trees that were planted then, that were young then, uh, are quite tall now and they've, uh, they crowd the skyline. It's uh, in fact difficult to imagine a craft uh, the size of what he supposedly saw uh, landing or manoeuvring in this spot, but I'm sure it would have looked quite different back in the day. Um, like I said, I've come out of an area uh, largely of coniferous, that is to say evergreen trees, so it's quite dark in there, but I've come out into the light now because uh, what I'm looking at is an area uh, in front of me and which is mostly deciduous trees and it being December they're quite bare. So you can see through them to the hill beyond which I believe is known as Deer Hill. There's a little plinth in the middle of it with a plaque and on the plaque is written this is the site referred to in Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which describes an encounter between a forestry worker out walking and what appeared to him as an unidentified flying object. And it's dated to 1991. On the morning of November 9th, 1979, 61-year-old forestry worker Robert Taylor, accompanied by his red setter Lara, parked his pickup truck at the base of a hill known as Deckmont Law, just outside the town of Livingston. It was about 10 in the morning. He made his way on foot up the hill through the coniferous forest known as the Deckmont Woods. Taylor emerged into a clearing and floating in front of him was something that seemed to have come from another world. The craft was dull silver, spherical and huge. It had a rim running around its equator, from which strange propeller-like shapes emerged. Dark coloured circles were placed around the upper perimeter. The entire object seemed to turn from being solid to being slightly see-through, time and again as though phasing in and out of our reality. Taylor barely had time to register this bizarre apparition before something even more extraordinary occurred, something unique even in the weird history of ufology. Two equally strange objects came from the direction of the larger craft. He never knew whether they came out of it or whether they had simply been behind it. He described them as looking like World War II landmines. He said they were spherical, maybe about a metre across, 
and each one of them had spikes coming out of it that were equally spaced around the sphere. They rolled on these spikes and they rolled towards him. And when they got to him, they dug their spikes into his trousers, into the fabric of his trousers, and attempted to drag him towards the craft. Now when these smaller beings got close to him, he recorded an incredible, cloying, noxious, acidic sort of a smell. He became very overwhelmed, and he indeed passed out. Now when he came around again, he estimated that he had been out for perhaps all of 20 minutes. He of course had no idea what had happened in the intervening time. His dog was still there, barking and uh, clearly concerned for its owner's well-being. He got up and made his way back towards his pickup truck, but he realised he had various physical problems um, as a result of the encounter. He was incredibly thirsty, he had marks on his forehead and on his chin. His trousers were ripped in the two areas where the objects had made contact with him. He had trouble standing and walking on his feet. And when he reached his vehicle and activated his radio so he could talk to home base, uh, he found that his voice was gone also. He got into the car and tried to move it back, but unfortunately his uh, discombobulation caused him to drive it into a ditch which he could not get it out of. So he ended up walking about a mile and a half home instead of going back to work. But just occasionally, there is physical evidence to back up reports of close encounters. On the morning of November the 9th, 1979, forestry worker Bob Taylor walked down this woodland track outside Livingston New Town near Edinburgh. He rounded a corner and was astonished to be confronted by an unearthly object. It was a huge thing with a big round dome, a very dark grey colour, and it had a, a big flange going all the way around. I could see arms sticking out of this flange with what I took to be blades on the top. Later he described what he'd seen to a local newspaper artist who drew this sketch. As I stood here, there was two balls came out, two balls, I'd think they'd be about three feet in diameter, with about six spikes. And they were rolling on these spikes, and they came right up beside me, and I remember feeling a tug at that time. And a very powerful smell, a choking sort of smell, and that was it. He crawled up this path and staggered home to be met on the doorstep by his bewildered wife. He looked terrible when he came in the door and he just stood at the door and I said, have you had an accident with your lorry? And he said, no, I've been attacked. And I said, what with? And he said, a spaceship. And I said, oh, goodness me, there's no such a thing as a spaceship. I'm going to phone the doctor. You must have fell and hurt your head. He looked quite shocked. 
and he, he was drained, he was ripe white, and his face was dirty, and he had a red scar here. And uh, his clothes were all dirty, and his trousers. And then he told me his trousers had been torn. By all accounts, he's not a man who had much of an imagination or had any interest in science fiction, fantasy, or the uh, UFO phenomena in general. However, he assumed that what he had seen was a spaceship, and his wife more or less took him at his word. She immediately called his boss, Malcolm Drummond, and his personal doctor, Gordon Adams. They came around to the house fairly sharp. So Dr. Adams took a look at Robert Taylor, uh, and didn't find anything too seriously wrong with him, which I think comes in important later on when we get to some of the potentially sceptical explanations for what happened. The police were called and they discovered inexplicable track marks at the scene of the incident. On examining the area, I found two track marks in approximately 40 holes in the ground. And these are the track marks here. And these are the 40 holes. Uh, since then, I've photographed the holes. This is a photograph of the hole here. This is a hole that measured approximately three and a half inches. And this other photograph here, you can actually see the trade marks which correspond to the marks here. These markings and tracks were actually inside this area here that's fenced off. Uh, and there's definitely no other tracks leading to or from this area. These are the trousers worn by Mr. Taylor. As you can see, they're of fairly heavy material. We have a tear on the left, just below the pocket, and one on the right trouser leg, again, just below the pocket. These marks are consistent with the material having been pulled up while the trousers were being worn. Well, I'm pretty certain that that day that I saw a spaceship sitting here. We must accept the story of Mr. Taylor. He is a very highly respected member of the community, a man of high integrity, and not one likely to invent such a story. If we exclude the possibility of it being a hoax, as those who knew him personally do, then it seems difficult to come up with any convincing sceptical explanation for what he experienced. Skeptic Stuart Campbell has come up with perhaps the most comprehensive alternative explanation. He notes that Taylor had, years previously, been diagnosed with meningitis. Meningitis can make one susceptible to having an epileptic fit, and epileptic fits are sometimes preceded by hallucinations, visual, oral or olfactory. Certain aspects of the story do appear to match with this explanation. The acidic smell, the loss of voice and coordination following a loss of consciousness. But Taylor's doctor, Gordon Adams, has always maintained that if Taylor suffered an epileptic fit on November 9th, 1979, it was the only such fit he ever had, for years before or after, which would be an extremely unlikely situation. Campbell also feels compelled to explain what indeed Taylor must have seen in order to trigger the fit, though efforts here are less convincing. He pulls out the old debunker trope of presuming that Taylor must have seen the planet Venus, which is extremely bright, low in the sky, and sometimes visible on clear autumn mornings. 
in order to explain why the sight of a static, distant, star-like light must have frightened the forester so much that he had a fit, Campbell invokes a frankly ridiculous theory of atmospheric reflection, in which the images of objects in the sky are reflected and magnified so they seem like large, bright objects here on Earth. It's a phenomena that no astronomers recognise, and though it sounds superficially more scientific than an extraterrestrial explanation, in fact, it has no more credibility to it. One thing that did strike me is that though the spherical craft and its bizarre occupants, be they robots, biological creatures or otherwise, is that though at first they appear to be utterly without precedent, and within UFO lore they certainly are, learning a bit more about Taylor's own history sheds a little light on the situation. Taylor was a tank driver during World War II, and he participated both in the Dunkirk evacuation and the liberation of Europe during the days following D-Day. Knowing this, the pseudo-World War II tech of the Deckmont Woods alien invaders starts to come into focus. Robots that look like sea mines? Craft that leave caterpillar tracks? Perhaps, if Taylor was having a hallucination, it would be unsurprising that the visions of this World War II veteran would manifest in such a way. Except, visions are not generally known to leave physical traces. All in all, the Deckmont Woods encounter feels significant, partly because of the intense strangeness of the encounter, the fact that Taylor reported uh, a craft and beings utterly unlike anything else in uh, UFO lore or in other kinds of science fiction, and also the fact that he himself seems to have been a pretty stand-up witness who never changed his story over many decades, nor did he ever try to make any money out of it. Listening to interviews with him today, one gets the distinct impression that you're dealing with a, a truth, truthful man simply explaining something he saw that was strange, bizarre, that he himself had no explanation for, but one that most definitely did happen. You've been listening to another episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like what you've heard, then please get in touch, feel free to reach out, share episodes with anyone who you think might like it. You can find us on Twitter where we're at Strange Ireland, and we're now on Instagram as well. That's a new thing, we're trying it out just to see whether or not it works. There we are, White Atlantic Weird Podcast. As usual, send in any strange stories you may have yourself, we'll be delighted to read them out. We promise to believe them. So stay safe till next time, and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.